0: Hello, and welcome back to the Arbitration Station, episode 13.
1: I'm looking at you now again. You, you so keep a count. It is 13?
0: Yeah, let me check my phone. <laughs> On the. Arbitration station on iTunes, everybody download. No, it's uh, this is number 12. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> you, you haven't been right once so, so far. <laughs> that's
1: true. But we are the arbitration station, the suit and tie edition. Yeah,
0: really. we should film it one time with video so people can see what we usually wear.
1: Yeah, well, usually we record remotely via Skype, and I don't really know... I just assume that you're in suit and tie. I'm super much not in in suit and tie.
0: Yeah, you're in a cabin in like sweats probably. Yes,
1: uh, if if I'm dressed at all. (laughs) But now we're both in suit and tie because we are once again at your office because your office is hosting the Swedish
0: Arbitration Day. Day. Yeah, every year. Exactly. The Young Arbitrators of Sweden have this every year, and it's um, just a panel, four different panels, I believe, Uh, going through just certain arbitration topics for the Nordic community. And we have some international people coming as well. Yeah, the fourth panel
1: is is in English. It's strange to me that we still... um maintain a Swedish requirement
0: or that the rest of it is in Swedish. But I guess that's a discussion yeah. for another for another day. For, right. <laughs> Language and arbitration. Is it useful? Sweden will now be like one of the top languages because <laughs> you won't be able to understand anything. Uh, but yeah, I was just actually at a moot slash conference in Boston. I came back two days ago, so I'm slightly jet-lagged.
1: Is this the FDI moot that you didn't know about, like, as of three weeks ago?
0: What are you talking about? Yeah, that's true. I knew about it, uh, but I did not know what it entailed or what it was, What it meant. But basically, I can tell you it was a, like, harmonious blend of the VIS moot and the Frankfurt moot. So it was a VIS moot in the sense that it was a closed problem, but it was an investment case, Um, And so I just hopped in on a couple of arbitration rounds on my vacation, because that's what you do when you're a huge nerd. Uh, But no, I contacted them, and they were very open about it, and little did I know, Stockholm is hosting next year's moot. Um, So they actually asked me if I could speak on behalf of Stockholm, and I wasn't available that day. Um, So I couldn't do that. But then... The question of the case, and maybe we'll bring this up in another topic, is intellectual property and arbitration and how those kind of go together. And they had a mini panel, it was just about an hour, about people talking about how in that problem, for example, how TRIPS, the TRIPS agreement between states could come in as a way to define the fair and equitable treatment standard as far as legitimate expectations of an investor coming and investing if you would expect a state to abide by their obligations under TRIPS to respect the patent for a drug that they were producing in that case. That's good.
1: Let's put a pin in that.
0: Definitely. That's a a good topic. Definitely. But
1: but on today's show, we have three other topics. Yes. One of which is dual nationals. You were one of them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I will celebrate your new new double citizenship. Advise me
0: on my rights. (laughs) And you'll be talking about opening statements. Exactly. So talking about techniques, styles, uh, useful ideas, things to think about, um, less about content because obviously that's case specific. And today's happy fun
1: time topic is not really happy or fun, but important and non-substantive. So we'll call it happy fun for this time. It's about the, the Me Too hashtag and discussions about sexual harassment, and power structures in our field.
0: Yeah, this is not limited to Harvey Weinstein. This is not limited to Kevin Spacey. This is this is in every field of work, and it is in our field, and we have some firsthand stories that we want to talk about. And we also kind of want to bring this to light to our field to realize that we need to do something about it.
1: Yeah, and I, I feel, I, I assume you feel the same, that this has also, it's an important topic that has been lifted by, driven by, initiated by, carried by women, although it's its really about men, it's not about women, and men largely have been silent. So it, maybe that's the reason, even though we are two, two, two guys, I think it's our responsibility now that we have a captive audience yeah. to, to talk about this and, and uh, hopefully see a few more men uh, stop tweeting about Donald Trump and instead... move move into this uh, crucial discussion.
0: Definitely. I mean, we've had a couple of people contact us to take this topic on. uh, So we're not trying to steal the narrative. We're definitely just trying to put this on a more public platform and kind of encourage discussions between everyone. Speaking of
1: that, before we move on, I also have a few housekeeping issues as chairmen or chairpeople of tribunals tend to say that are not related to today's (laughs) procedure, but are uh other, other issues that have been brought to our attention by listeners. I have, I've kept a list. I think I've missed at least like four or five things I, I should mention. But uh, let me just do a quick rundown of, of things that have been brought to our attention. First of all, some of you uh, apparently, uh, no judgments, but you, you don't uh, listen to this on iTunes or the web page. But you prefer SoundCloud and you want to be able to download the podcast as opposed to stream it directly. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was like one person, but I've I've received six or seven emails about this. And the reason being that SoundCloud is super expensive, so they have temporarily shut down our service, so you can only access a few episodes right now.
0: Really? Yeah. Oh, so Yeah. We,
1: we're working on that. We probably need to either to get some more money from someone to pay for it, or we'll need to figure out something else, another way for people to download. Yeah, exactly. But that's that's being worked on, so, so no worries. Uh, another thing is that I talked to the editor of the OGMID email, Listserv. This was actually on, on my motion because I was a little bit worried that we talk so much about things that are on the OGMID list while formally you shouldn't because it's sort of a closed list. Similar, right. Do you remember I asked you last time you talked about the London conference? Like, are we allowed yeah. to? And basically what he said was as long as you discuss the topics generically and you're focusing on the substance rather than like attributing views to specific people, you can use what's being talked on the OGMID list as a... As, um, platform for for other discussion and that's relevant because i will use an OGMA discussion later in this episode what else what else the place of arbitration series it's going to come in what we envision is season two
0: exactly so we'll probably we will be finishing this season before the end of the calendar year and then we need a call to action for people in jurisdictions around the world we've Seeing you tweeted us, email us, contact us. Now yeah,
1: it's, it's, maybe we don't even need more a call for action because we, <laughs> we, we, have, have we have people from, from Ottawa to Seoul have, have approached us and, and want to right. discuss their own jurisdiction. So we have uh, more than enough for a full season of place of arbitration uh, well, around great. the world. Yeah. So that's going to happen. And then finally, uh, a person that I respect very much uh, contacted me about the things uh, I said primarily about the Vattenfall transparency thingy when your pleadings were broadcast live and I was sort of embracing this that this is a good step for transparency yes this this loyal listener made the point that it's it's basically no use having this broadcast live if you don't have access to the submissions in question so he was a little bit upset that I made a big transparency case out of this because it's some would argue it's really a theater because if you don't have access to the party's submissions and arguments, there's no point in following the whole thing. So it's not super transparent unless you get the whole thing.
0: Okay, not to debate your highly respected loyal listener, but I do know that these, from you know working with the submissions, that these opening statements were very close to what was discussed in the submissions. Obviously, they were very extreme details and supporting documents but um, obviously we're not like the ideal would be that everyone can just come in and rummage through the papers but this is the first step that has not been done in any case or it has been done in some cases but it's not the status quo so this is a, a good first step we could say good You're doing your job well. (laughs) Money well spent. Exactly. (laughs) Okay,
1: let's move on then to the actual substance of today. (laughs) So, Brian, 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 my dual national friend. (laughs) I have as a gift
0: to you... A
1: gift? I have cake. No.
0: Oh. Damn it. I was like, I'm on a diet, Joel. This is rude. What I do have, though, is a quiz. Okay. <laughs> the opposite of cake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: this is going to be, I think, a standing uh, thing. I love this. When I get the opportunity to, to prepare and research and then I quiz you and you don't have that opportunity and yeah. call you out on your lack of knowledge. This is actually a hard quiz, so, so <laughs> don't, don't take it personally if you get
0: The capital of Djibouti. Got it. <laughs>
1: No, but you are joining an esteemed club of arbitration people with dual citizenships. You may think you're the first, but you are not.
0: Yes. <laughs> Is that question one? Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> Correct answer. No, so, I have so. here a
1: number of arbitration people who already have dual citizenships, and I'm going to ask you which are the, the two uh, countries. they use. have? Exactly. Oh, God. So, okay, I'll, I'll start with an easy one, or a relatively easy <laughs> no, one. No,
0: don't say that. <laughs> okay. Jan Paulson. Okay, Swedish-American. No. <laughs> what? <laughs> Dang. Yes. That was the easy one. Oh, 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 oh. Swedish Portuguese. Well, Swedish French. Yes.
1: Okay. Okay, I'll give you a point for that. Okay. Actually. Secondly, Yas Bani Fatimi.
0: Okay. Uh, French and Iranian? Correct. Yes. William Rusty Park. Oh, I know this. American and French. Swiss. Oh. Close, though. Yeah, I thought he had a pied de terre in Paris. Maybe. Oh, that yeah, cool. would make sense. <laughs> Eduardo Silva Romero. Okay, Spanish? No. <laughs> Frick. <laughs> oh, Argentinian? No. Chilean? No. I love I, this. We should I, do this. I'm every running time. out of South American <laughs> countries.
1: He's Colombian-French.
0: Oh. And he's based... I should have guessed French first, yeah.
1: And finally, uh, Laurent Levy in... At his own firm that carries his own name.
0: Yes, um, Swiss. And this is a hard one. I'm. I think I'm like part psychic. So let me just channel my chakras. Canadian. Brazilian. Okay, not even close. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> I apologize for this, but I think it's a. It's a. That was fun. good. Time. Yeah. And so this is not what they test you on when you get your Swedish citizenship. No, that, they that didn't it's test a different that. kind of test. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine, but this is a great topic actually because it uh, it um, forces us to separate exit from non-exit arbitration. I'm moving beyond the quiz and into the dual nationals as investors under investment arbitration right. clauses. This is a, a, a super interesting topic, I think. And for you, if you are not interested in this, you should think of it as uh, whether or not you can sue the U.S. and or Sweden in the future. Yes. Should you have an interest in, in doing so? On. So the question is, can Brian sue Sweden or the US now that he is a citizen of both countries? The answer is, that depends.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but one of my favorite uh, themes is that exit and non-exit is different in investment arbitration. That's the premise for my dissertation and it's something right. that I say every day when I meet with people on the street. And it it really... This is a good illustration of that distinction, basically. In ICSID, it's pretty clear that you cannot sue the state that you are also a citizen in uh, or of. Because under Article 25 of the exit convention, uh, a dispute it has to be between a contracting state and the national of another contracting state. There's sort of a, a timing issue here that sometimes comes up. So when, when do you have to be a national of another state? Right. Uh, But that's not really relevant for the overarching purposes here. Um, It is the date of consent to arbitration and the date of registration of the exit case. So both of those dates cumulatively. Yep, got it. (laughs) (laughs) So exit, no go. So you cannot launch an exit case if you're a citizen also of the the host state that you're suing. And sometimes, although not very often, you see investment treaties that expressly forbid dual nationals from, from launching a case. In those cases, of course, also no go. Right. And I don't know how far TTIP got, because TTIP, in your case, would be the treaty upon which you would rely to, to sue the U.S. or Sweden, because there's no investment treaty between the U.S. and Sweden right now. But I think, I would imagine that they have regulated uh, dual nationals' standings in TTIP if it ever happens. But there is one avenue potentially that's open to you. So you cannot sue at exit, and you cannot sue if the treaty prevents you especially from doing so. But, of course, most treaties do not regulate dual citizens, and most treaties also allow for other fora other than exit. And all other rules... Uncetral, the ICC, the SEC, everything we talk about on this podcast, they were developed primarily not for investor-state arbitration, but for commercial arbitration. So they are naturally silent on dual nationals standings. Which means, if it's not in the arbitration rules, it's not in the treaty, we have to move into this open space of the applicable law and, and look at dual nationals and their standing under international law, and this is where it gets interesting. So there is this famous ICJ case, the Notteboom case, which established the effective and dominant test. Right. So the question is, basically, you need to determine one state that is your effective and dominant citizenship.
0: Uh, Well, and the facts of that case were he was, he had two citizenships and then he gave up one, correct? Yeah and then he st- but he still had links to that country. Yeah, exactly. Country.
1: And I mean that is, it's usually the case if you have two citizenship t- typically you have some sort of relationship to both right. states. And the point of course the purpose behind the test is that you should not be able to sort of in a in a, in a fictional way in bad faith obtain a new citizenship in order to sue the your first right uh, national visa. Because
0: it's so easy and there's so many ways people can just like sign up for citizenship. Yeah. But I, th- I mean... There, Seriously, I, guess, you, I mean, maybe like not what, in... buying property? Yeah. Yeah. Many states
1: actually allow you to do that. And you can get, the, if just by being... Jewish? Th- <laughs> that's right. That's not what I was going to say. T- I you? tried to
0: get a Spanish citizenship through that. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah.
1: Israeli would probably be easier, no?
0: Yeah, and then I'd have to serve in the army. Yeah. Good luck with
1: that. <laughs> Brian on the front line.
0: I'd be like, can we just talk about this? <laughs> Arbitration for peace. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where's the jack? <laughs>
1: But this test was developed in international law. So it was developed in the context of diplomatic protection. So it's not really developed in investment arbitration. So this was discussed actually in the Mikula case. I know you were not involved in the, in the original arbitration, but maybe you're aware of the basic facts because they're the two Mikula brothers. And I think some of the Clemens were also corporations. So that's a, a non-issue. But the two uh, physical persons, the two Mikula brothers... They were originally Romanian, but then they got Swedish citizenship, both of them, and they gave up their Romanian citizenships, and then they sued Romania.
0: Exactly. And
1: Romania argued in the arbitration that these brothers are, in effect, still Romanian. So they just, they became Swedish uh, in bad faith, or, or they don't have a significant enough connection to Sweden, right. to be determined to be Swedish citizens. And then the tribunal basically said that this boom test does not really apply here because it's, it's in a different legal sphere. They also said that you determine nationality typically in investment arbitration by looking at the domestic law. And here Sweden, the Swedish agency in charge of... Skatteverket? Yeah. Yeah. They had obviously determined that the Mikulas fulfilled the requirements to be Swedish citizens, Swedish citizens. So the tribunal reasonably said that they were a bit hesitant to second-guess the Swedish authorities' uh, determination in this respect. So if, if Sweden considers them to be Swedish, who are we as a tribunal to right. say otherwise, basically? Right. So it didn't really fly. But there's another case, which is sort of the leading case on this, and it's an uncentral case. Mikula was an exit case. And on cases, once again, it's where it gets interesting because here it's not really regulated. The case I'm thinking about is the García Armas versus Venezuela case where uh, father and daughter García Armas, two physical persons once again, uh, had ties to both Spain and Venezuela, different kinds of ties. The father and daughter had different relationships, but basically they had significant ties to both uh, states and they sued Venezuela then, naturally. And there, there the tribunal said quite reasonably, I think, that the BIT is lex specialis in relationship to customary international law. Right. So before you look at this noteboom test and the general regulation in international law, you look at, it, law, yeah. look at the yeah, exactly because that's the, the way it, it's regulated by the, the state parties. So if the treaty is clear, we don't have to go into all this stuff about effective nationality, etc., etc. And here the treaty said uh, in the definition of investor that an investor is a physical person having the nationality of one of the contracting parties who invests in the other contracting party. So it was pretty open-ended. Right. Which then turned into the question, does this exclude investors with both nationalities, basically? And... The investors here were smart, and they argued that Venezuela is one of the states that in many of their treaties actually expressly exclude dual nationals from, from suing. And they had not done so in this treaty.
0: Oh, they have other treaties where they did Exactly. It. Okay. So,
1: so the investors, they, they brought a lot of other treaties to the tribunal's attention, saying, you know, arguing, look here, they have a bunch of treaties in which they have expressly excluded it, but they did not in this treaty. Right. So that would uh, mean that this is not regulated, and in that context, you should be... Careful to read in something that's not in the treaty. Yeah, and the tribunal agreed with this, and therefore allowed. It's logical. The, yeah, so they could proceed with their claims, even though they were dual nationals. Right. So this has sort of opened up the discussion. Now, what's going to happen? Because it is, as a matter of law, it's not regulated outside of exit So I guess, as of now, you can probably sue either of your two home states Great. under under the UNCITRAL rules or the SEC rules.
0: Yeah. I mean I'm, I really don't find that there's a huge problem with that outcome when we look at the interpretation of this ambiguity of whether dual nationals can bring claims I mean you're talking about an investor who has the nationality of one country investing into the host state for the development and progression of that state so you're regardless of where this person was born and where they went to school and how they got their citizenship, unless like what you're saying there is bad faith that the, you have some sort of notification that they started investing and realizes they realized that they needed to get out of dodge so that they could have protection under the BIT unless there's proof of that, then you're still if you look to the preamble of the BIT you're still contributing to the economic development so supposedly
1: supposedly I guess the whole state would sometimes say that you know this this is not an investment. Either. They would yeah. question that fact as well and say this Correct. is just a, a sales contract or right. something else. But, I mean, yeah, you're right. But it gets problematic, of course, in uh, specifically in the context where you, the first state, the original citizenship, so to speak, that state does not allow you to give up your citizenship. Many states like do Abraham. not actually allow – exactly. They do not allow yeah. you to uh, sort of uh, – Say bye bye to to uh, the Iranian nationality, yeah. for example. So then th- they can, by by virtue of that rule, they could then stay away from uh, being the respondent in in treaty-based cases. True. Basically, but I mean that's a maybe a, a small thing. What is your effective and dominant nationality if you were to, if if we were to apply the Nattabom case to the facts of Brian kodak's life?
0: Well, so interestingly enough, if you talked about. Fulfilling the requirements under Swedish citizenship law. There is a rule. We'll talk about how, hard, how easy that is to enforce. I've gotten many arguments over this. But that if you have been out of the country for more than six weeks combined, so if I took 10 business trips for a week each time, those six weeks or those 10 weeks would then be discounted from the five years required to be in the country to be a citizen because they're almost like building in this effective nationality, right? Okay, you live here and you have an apartment here, but if you're gone 100 days out of the year, then you're not technically a Swedish citizen. So they kind of build that in. The problem is, is that that's hardly enforceable because the only way that they check that is by looking at your passport with the EU being the EU. How can they tell anything?
1: But this so, is prior to you getting the citizenship, right? This is just in the, in the pre-phase uh, when they are trying to determine whether you should get it. Once you have it, that does
0: not apply. No, because exactly. Because they cannot Once take it away. It. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so in that sense, my effective nationality would still be uh, Sweden. But if I was, you know, a lawyer arguing my case against me, I would be like, he has family there. He went to school there. You know what I mean? There's so many the connections. US, mean, yeah. yeah. There's so many connections that I have. Do you pay taxes in the U.S.? You have to declare taxes yeah, in the that's U.S., what I but talking. I don't pay because every dollar that I spend in Sweden, tax dollars, which is a ton, uh, is discounted against the taxes that I pay in the U.S. Um, so I essentially don't pay taxes, even though I still have to declare. But that could be another thing that you like bring up, I guess. Yeah, even yeah you could argue both ways, it. essentially. But I think the question really compounds on itself when you talk about not individuals. So you talk about companies. Um, and I think that, I don't know if you've looked into that because that is a whole other animal, is that you have this locally incorporated entity that is trying to bring claim. It's not always the parent bringing claims on behalf of the entity. Sometimes the entity is considered a claimant. It's a bit vague on whether that's able to be done or not. So the dual nationality in the individual could be a little bit more cut and dry compared to corporations that are... You, I mean, you can't just look to where it's incorporated. Yeah, it's true, and that's that's the big discussion, of course, because this having dual nationals suing the
1: state that they're also national of it's it's not super common compared to the no. piercing the corporate veil discussion, which happen which happens all the time when you have bigger corporations with several entities Definitely. incorporated in different states. Let me ask you this before we end this segment as well: Is there do you think it's uh, assuming now that you down the line aspire to become an arbitrator? Is mm-hmm. it a pro or a con that you now have two citizenships? Speaking not as a potential investor,
0: which is highly unlikely, but rather as a potential arbitrator, which is less unlikely. Pro, it has to be a pro. I mean, it, uh, it doesn't really make a difference, honestly. Like well,
1: as we have talked about the nationality, especially for the chairperson, it's it's actually something that makes a difference. That's uh, it can be the deciding factor in many appointments.
0: Whether I get the appointment or not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, you
1: need someone who's not a party of of a, either of the. the, the not a citizen of either of the parties, but right. but still has some connection. Uh,
0: yeah. Oh, so it would almost disqualify me, answer? Yeah, that's cases. what I'm thinking.
1: Like, shit, he is yeah. both American and uh, Swedish. That would uh, disqualify him from many more cases. Or it could
0: be other w- other way
1: around. That you're,
0: I don't know. You're right. I mean, I didn't think about this. No, <laughs> no, well, I'll just give up my U.S. citizenship. I mean, come on, I don't want to declare taxes there or be affiliated with our president. Political podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I haven't thought about that, but you're right; that could play a role in uh, p- potential appointments. Yeah,
1: views are invited, especially from the exit secretary general. Yes. Meg Kinnear, can you please Celeste. call in and tell us? <laughs> exactly. Celeste is perfect. <laughs> is, is Brian now more eligible for, the, for exit appointments? By She's virtual? also
0: a dual national, now that I think about it. Chilean and? Swedish. Huh. I believe she got her citizenship if she didn't. Then she needs to come on back and get it. Uh, but yeah, uh, all comments welcome.
1: Yeah, and it's not like that's the only obstacle uh, in the way of you becoming a good arbitrator. No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's many more. Oh, God, let's move on. Welcome back. We have our second topic, second substantive topic, was well, isn't super substantive, but... Uh, more arbitration based, is the issue of opening statements in arbitration. And I think a lot of people approach this issue differently. And it really goes to your background, actually, um, from what I've read and what I've seen. And I think if we talk about the role of an opening statement and the role of an oral hearing in general, as far as advocacy is concerned, what is that role nowadays, when there's such a push to have the written pleadings being more important, having witness statements being more important, What's the role that we see? Um, And this is, I would say, a common law need to have this opening statement and a common law need to have a closing argument uh, and to have examinations and more direct examinations because you feel that there's some sort of impact that you can get on the tribunal by having, getting in front of their faces and kind of arguing the points that they've seen on paper. So it kind of gets into the the psychology of arbitration um, and... The aim, I would say, of an opening statement is to have a dialogue or what I would say for people that are doing it for the first time or people that um, run the risk of you know, being nervous in front of a tribunal for opening statements is that it should really be focused on having a dialogue with the tribunal to develop an understanding of what the case is. Um, and does that mean that the arbitrators are not reading the pleadings? No, they've read the pleadings, but they're usually you know immense. There's a lot of documents, and you need to take the tribunal by the hand and walk them through with highlighting and pointing out what the like key elements are and to make sure that they've really understood what you were trying to get across. I'm a pacta sunsavanna kind of I'm a pacta sunsavanna kind of For example,
1: <laughs> good bullet point to just establish and, and explain to the tribunal in case there's any <laughs> doubt
0: about that. Just like, let's get all the common understandings out on the table first. But I, if, so, the open, and just like you're saying like this, Joel, the, I mean, the opening statement is your first opportunity to address the tribunal. And you can get into the psychological elements of, what the impact is of being the first to speak in a case, um, whether the tribunal now deems you as the authority in the case because you were the first to speak. There's um, writings on that as well. So when you know that your first impression to the tribunal is literally the first argument that comes out of your mouth, you need to make sure that it's well curated and not just reading off a piece of paper um, to make sure that you develop a rapport with the tribunal and that they not only trust you, but that they'll defer to you in any um essence of doubt. Um, so what? I, so I kind of have some presentation techniques that I would say have come up in a couple of opening statements that I've seen. And Can we, I ask you first, who, yeah.
1: who typically does the opening statement? Is it the most senior member on the team? It's, it's,
0: yeah, and that's actually something that I want to talk about as well. It's usually, yes, the most senior people because they have the most pondus in front of the tribunal. However, it's not usually one person that does it because no one can have the whole grip the whole you know, idea of the case, um, because it's just too big. So it's often divvied up between the partners and maybe a senior associate who has been kind of the main actor on the case will hop in as well and get a part so of it. So the
1: first uh, opening statement or part of the first opening statement, that's like a, a big thing, a step in your career, the first time you get to make part of a statement.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. To present in front of a tribunal. And the smaller the case is, the more your part you're going to have and the more the more willing a partner will be like, okay, you can just take the opening statement because this is, you know, beneath me. Yeah, it's a tiny case. It's a tiny the big, case.
1: I saw you on the Vattenfall livestream running around with the folders in the back. You were not giving any opening statements I was not in that speaking. billion dollar no, case. I was actually
0: 15 <laughs> people down the row. So uh, you probably didn't see me unless I was drawing objections. But, uh, I mean to think about, and that's this is something I also want to think about, is that you have usually the person who kind of sets the tone of the case, you have your theme, your theory, and then you kind of delve into the facts and delve into the law. Now, because it is divvied up, there's a problem because of what, if we go back to my original overarching theme, that this should be a dialogue with the tribunal, it's your, the issues all link together, right? So if you're the person taking care of the legal arguments and the legal standards, well, you're going to have to apply the facts that your colleague just explained, So if you get into the nitty-gritty of fair and equitable treatment or a breach of contract and you don't know the entire case by heart, then you have this, this hole and this really disconnect between what has been said before. And if your presentation is reading your notes and then you get a question from the tribunal, then you're going to be completely caught off guard and answering questions that you don't want, and you have things on the record that you will have to correct in post-hearing briefs. Or if you don't have post-hearing briefs, then it's now on the record, and now you're on the record for being contradictory How to common you, so. is that, though,
1: that the tribunal asks questions during the opening statement? That's not considered a, a faux pas that they are interfering with the... No. no,
0: this is the first time. And especially if a tribunal is read up, I think it's their first time to kind of be like, OK, this is what I've been thinking out for the past five years when I wasn't able to say anything. Let me get your thoughts on this. And it it can be a more I would say you're not going to get into like, well, what? why is it a five percent interest rate versus the three? They're not going to ask that question, but they're going to say, OK, but what's your general position on? You know, a state's ability to regulate, you know, in the context of this case, because that's something that really comes up. So I wanna hear your position in an opening statement type of environment on how you think this case should be looked at.
1: Yeah, get the narrative, basically. That sets the tone for the exactly. rest of
0: what's, it. Exactly. What's what's your client's position in general? So that's what I'm saying. When you divvy it up and you get down, and then you're, okay, I only, do, I only do the damages. I have no idea what's happening before me or after me. I'm doing damages, and you just tell me when to go, and I'll jump out of the gate. Then you're not going to be prepared, and you're not going to be prepared with what's happening. Um, <clears throat> so how do you... Kind of, what techniques can you use to really not only engage the tribunal, but also convince the tribunal? And I would say that there are technology has something that's been coming up a lot recently um, to engage the tribunal. So people are using a lot of demonstrative exhibits. It's your time to kind of create a pictorial timeline of how a case progressed. You have people use videos if there's a very complex structure of companies or um, an interesting part of the industry that the layman wouldn't necessarily understand. Then you have kind of like a video representation that kind of dumbs down everything and says, "Okay, what are we really talking about here? If we're talking about the creation of a bottle cap, like I need to show you the bottle cap line of operations so that you kind of understand where you are. If Site visits don't really happen, right? So this is kind of your site visit to kind of like dig your hand into the sand of the case and be like, okay, what are we really talking about? This isn't just legal arguments going back and, and then forth. you pay some, some poor person to make this video.
1: Yes. From scratch.
0: Yes. And then you have to realize that this is also an advocacy thing. So if they're going to, the opposing counsel is going to attack this. It can't be too advocacy, you know, advocate, advocate. Exactly. It's kind of has to set the stage in a very neutral ground if you're doing a video because opposing side will, you know, completely debase it as saying, okay, this is just propaganda, really. Um, So that the the purpose of a video would just really be bare bones to set the stage. Um, And then people are using PowerPoints. Everybody uses a PowerPoint and everybody uses these things called call outs, um, which is basically... You have a PowerPoint that says, "Okay, look, you know this document is the contract," and then you have the slide, and then you have a picture of the contract, and then you say, "Part two of the contract says," and then you have this little box that goes around part two, and then it pops out, and then it says closer to the screen what part two says because you're dealing with older, you know, older arbitrators, you can't see that much. They have, especially at Exit, they have mini-screens because the arbitrators themselves don't face the screen, so they have mini-screens in front of them. They're not going to see this document being print-screened and put in a PowerPoint, so you have to have it call out. Some people use trial max as another thing um, that people are using. Some people use whiteboards if they want to, you know, look more spontaneous and more like professorial type. Exactly, uh, and I think that can be persuasive because it, pu- it pulls you out of your preparedness, right? Like whatever I'm writing down is something I've created for the first time, and I think that is persuasive. So, how do you deal with a panel of arbitrators in different sense, in a different in different ways when an arbitra- when an arbitral tribunal, for example, is unprepared? Um, when you've noticed that they're not asking any questions, that opposing counsel is getting it all wrong and that you object and they don't really understand what's happening, um, how there's a, there's a real art, and this is where it goes to the psychology of the case. If you're talking to someone, let's say you're talking to your mom about what you do for a living, and you say, I do international investment arbitration, and she goes, what is that? Okay, so now you're dealing with an uninformed person. You kind of need to, in a very delicate art, weave back and be like, okay, let me bring you to the basics but also weave it into what you're really trying to say, so you're not going to be like, okay, let me start. I started studying law... No, you don't go back like that. <laughs> in the that. beginning, there and was then, light. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it doesn't work like that. So it needs to be dealing with an... And that's that's where advocacy comes in in your opening statement, because you're setting the tone of your case without reciting everything that you've talked about before, but you're kind of weaving in the key points that you need to understand what the case is actually going to be decided on. And that's what... a a good intro to a case is saying, when I talked about the theme, is like, what, what do you, you as an arbitrator need to decide in this case in order for us to succeed, right? So I'm not asking you to tell the state to regulate what they need to do. I'm not asking you for this person to perform under the contract. I'm asking you to see whether this is a breach or not a breach. And then when you do it like that, then if you see someone is uninformed, your line of explanation will go from point A to point breach, And that's kind of where you have to lead every one of your explanations. Um, And another thing to think about when you're talking about engaging with an arbitral tribunal with questions is that I read an article the other day that said there's two types of thinking. You have slow thinking and you have fast thinking thinking. And slow thinking is your analytical, what? Yeah, it just sounds it's like so g- good thinking
1: and, and bad thinking. It's so fluffy. Well, yeah. <laughs> smart I, or not smart. That's right. what but, it sounds like.
0: And that's what happens because people get questions and then they start fast thinking. So let me break this down for you. Slow thinking is your analytical thinking that you take to like mull over the concepts and formulate your pleading. And a lot of people, especially non-native English speakers, will have a script and then you need to preserve the record so you basically recite your script because you want to make sure that everything is properly set onto the record then you get a question and then your slow thinking becomes fast thinking and people are not good at fast thinking because they are more willing to answer the question and make sure that there's you know an engagement with the tribunal instead of saying okay what is what am i saying and what is what am i saying is really right people drop their syntax they drop their um, verbal communication skills and it becomes a little bit more casual. It They hop out of a, the cadence that they had in their original pleading and they hop into an t- entirely different cadence. And that is dis- distracting, mm. honestly. Mm. And that's why you have to have your opening statement in mind that it's going to be a dialogue instead of being a recitation of the facts. Because that slow to fast thinking transition is going to be much more intense. And then you end up hopping off You know, into the deep end. For example, the use of rhetorical questions, the use of analogies. These are dangerous, dangerous things. You don't want to ask a tribunal rhetorical question because you're dealing with highly intellectual lawyers who can figure out any answer to your rhetorical question. But also, if you deal with analogies, people. The point of an analogy is to have the person understand, but the undoubtedly what we do as human beings is when we hear analogies, figure out how the analogy is wrong. And then you just sound like an idiot. This is why we have to edit so heavily in this podcast. As soon as <laughs> yeah. we go off script and then you listen afterwards like, shit, did I... Because we're going fast thinking <laughs> yeah. is what we're doing. Uh, so you have to really... And that's why the preparation... I've, you know, worked with people and worked against people where you've just seen basically them. And that's what I was telling you about Vatanfall not being, you know... I'm not saying that this happened in the Vol case. I'm saying that the opening statements can actually mirror the submissions because you literally are listening to the opening statement and you are you can have the submission side by side and be like, okay, they're literally just you know taking out adjectives and then making this into an opening statement.
1: But then on that note, can I ask you how do you avoid on the assumption that you have both an opening and a closing statement – How do you avoid the closing statement being just exactly a copy-paste of the opening statement so that you first you say what you're going to say and then you have the whole hearing and then you wrap up what has been said, which is essentially the same thing as you said initially?
0: Yeah, well, so the closing argument is actually a different art in and of itself. And a lot of people take completely different approaches on how to approach it. Okay,
1: on the next episode of the arbitration (laughs) (laughs) session. But to answer your question quickly,
0: because this is what you should do in an opening statement, you should address the question and then defer to a later later topic, is you can either take everything that has been said at the hearing through witness examination and expert testimony, plug it into what your arguments are, and say, look at what the witnesses and experts have confirmed in this case. And that's the structure. Uh, Tribunal can ask questions over the entirety of the case, and then your closing argument can just be addressing the questions that have been posed. What you should not do is repeat your opening statement. Uh, The opening statement is kind of going through everything in like a chronological order, usually, or thematic order. And then your closing argument should not go through that because you're just going to be boring everyone, especially when you have a two-day opening statement. So
1: you shouldn't typically prepare the closing statement before the hearing starts. You shouldn't fly to the hearings with both
0: an opening and a closing statement already written. Definitely not, because you're going to be writing the same thing. You should start writing your closing argument at the end of every day if you have an associate who's available to do so, which isn't always the case. Um, But that's, I mean, that's very brief on opening statements, but I think that the final thing that I want to say is that you have to know your audience and they say that to every public speaker is you have to know your audience. Where does your arbitrator come from? What is their nationality? What is their background? What kind of things do they like to hear? Do they like we talked about this last time with common law civil law. Do you like to hear an, a case being argued with another case or do you want to hear a scholar? Do you want to hear uh, like what does what do you think that tribunal want to hear? What languages do they speak? Um, do they know the facts of the case because they know the languages of the underlying documents? Do they know German and the cases in German? Uh, what is their Why were they appointed? Um, were they appointed because of their knowledge of the subject matter or were they appointed because their knowledge of the law? If that's the case, then you should kind of tailor your arguments to if you have a common law lawyer who was appointed for the subject matter, your subject matter presentation style should be tailored toward a common law lawyer because that's the person who's going to pick up on it the most
1: assuming that that is the person that you consider to be your audience because typically there are three on the tribunal and i guess you're now talking about the chairperson or you no know for anyone yeah because they might be different i mean so you have definitely you know,
0: maybe three different audiences using these uh, but people categories. always want to get you on the stuff that they know because that's what they know and so you you need to convince the person who thinks that they know it all on that subject, whereas the guy who doesn't know much about that, for example, more easily convinced. is more easily convinced. And then you just can relax on your presentation style. <clears throat> but that's, I mean, a very brief overview of what I think about in opening statements. But I really think that this should not be a summation, that this should be a dialogue between the tribunal, and that it should be work on when you're preparing for opening statements is not, let's go through in front of a mirror and go through my slides. It should be, let's test questions. Let me see how I can answer questions concisely and accurately, and how I can weave them into my arguments so that it it has a nice flow, so that my fast, slow thinking transition can be more seamless. That's a great point. Very American point as well. (laughs) You know, we had an actor come and teach us oral advocacy at my law school. because. It's, well, we have juries, so we convince yeah, true. That's true. We convince laymen. But even if you
1: don't, I, when I was at Georgetown, I spent a lot of time in the U.S. Supreme Court because I had a time and I'm a nerd, so I could just walk in when there were boring things on the agenda so there wasn't any, any lines. And in the U.S. Supreme Court, of course, there's no jury. It's just the legal points. Poor, poor counsel. Because yeah. you 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 never get more than you know, a minute of openings before you're uh, bombarded with questions from at least half of the judges, and then it's, it's just you know a witness examination basically for half an hour. You're just trying to field questions from the smartest lawyers in the country, right? Rather than sticking to the manuscript, you maybe naively prepared. I guess exactly. the people who are pleading they know what they're in for, but that's got to be very complicated.
0: Definitely, it's a whole a totally different preparation process. Yeah, poor people. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Welcome back to the happy fun time topic, which isn't so happy today, but we're going to, you know, make it a topic.
1: (laughs) It's a topic for sure.
0: Yeah.
1: We have a Pretty large audience, it seems, at this point, um, both from the data that we get and from, from the feedback that we get. And I feel, we feel, that it's sort of our duty to do something with this audience from time to time and not just uh, chit-chat. Hear over, ourselves over. speak. Yeah, exactly. And the topic, as we mentioned initially now, is the, the, the Me Too, for lack of a better word. I think everyone would know what we mean when we say the me too hashtag me too exactly and many people as brian said have approached us about this and as i hinted uh, it's also been on ogmid actually a pretty significant discussion about the extent to which all these patterns of harassment that are now being exposed in different sectors are also present in international arbitration or i mean of course they are. Yeah. But to what extent uh, is it a problem and what should we as a community as a as a field do about it?
0: Definitely. And this and this trickles down. This is not just a partner associate 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 it's partner secretary associate student. I mean this the constellation of situations where this comes up is you know, innumerable. Absolutely.
1: Although I mean to a certain extent the uh, the field is structured in such a way that more junior members are used, quote-unquote, by more senior members. That's, yes. that's the nature of the field. You will have to do work that someone else will take the credit for. You will probably have to slave in internships with no pay in order to get your first paying gig. And, and uh, you will have to be silent when decisions are being made that you do not agree with at all. But uh, it's not optimal that it is this way, uh, and it's not the same in every other business, I think. It might be specific to, to our field and some others. But uh, it's, it's just important. It's more or less the same for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. Entering the field as a junior member, you know this is the deal, and it is the deal for everyone. Um,
0: and That so, trickles to the personal, right? Yeah,
1: Yeah, for sure, because as soon as we introduce... Uh, abuse harassment or really anything with a sexual implication it's a different discussion completely i think
0: yeah i mean i when i was talking to someone about this before we started recording i what i said is this is a this is an exploitation of ambition i think is how i've pictured it especially in the legal field because it's such a doggy dog world it there's you know these coveted spots at these you know big firms and Institutions and stuff and people will literally do anything to get in and that blurs the line between victim and trying to get ahead. Um, and the people in power are not blind to the, uh, you know, their ability to Get what they want because, and they may seem like you know, and you know they may think that like, oh, everyone's laughing at my jokes and everything's great. It's like, no, people are actually really ambitious and will do anything to get into your spotlight. So let me paint a picture for you, Joel. Let's cut the crap and let's let's let me paint a situation for you. I was in, uh, we were actually mooting, and a person on my team, everyone on my team except for me had a job at the time, and uh, a person that I was mooting with, a girl. She um, we did very well in a round and there was a party after our rounds and a senior partner of a big firm came up to her and said, I want to promise you uh, an internship. You were so great in your rounds. I really think that you would do well at our firm for a summer internship. She was elated, super excited. I mean, this is why you go to Moots is to get these like, you know, ad hoc internship offers at the parties afterwards. And so we were all huddling around her. We were like, oh, my gosh, this is so great. Champagne for all. Yeah, we were so happy for her. And then um, and this partner was going in and out of our conversations. And then finally, you know, the night was ending and um, we were all waiting outside. And he's approached her again and said, do you want to come back to my room and my hotel room? And she's like, of what do you mean? He's like, you know, come on, let's go back to my hotel room. And she's like, I'm married. I don't think that's appropriate. And then quickly, the answer was, well, you can forget about that internship, and left. So not, e-
1: not even uh, subtle, you know, not even trying, trying to, to hide it.
0: it. <laughs> yeah, just like you know, that 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 ends here, type of thing. Um, and I I'll think move on
1: to the next girl in line. Exactly. That I'm interested in tonight.
0: So if you put, I mean, if let's say she wasn't married and didn't have a job that type of vulnerability can be exploited so easily. And these typically men know that this is there. Yeah. And they have no problem dealing with yeah. taking that.
1: But, yeah, I think this is, it's good that we are doing this now because what's happening now, both in the wider world and, and in our field, uh, at least the way it's uh, reflected on Ojimid is that women are coming forward with this uh, type of of uh, tales from what is what is going on and it's it's not news to other women i think typically No. it doesn't seem to be but seemingly it's news to most men though that's the reaction uh, that i think is it's out there and to a certain extent i think it's natural that they want to say you know shit is is this the extent of it now that it, it's been exposed is this the way it's always been and i just haven't been paying attention and then also natural i think is the instinctive reactions we're all experiencing as men As well, like shit, this guy that you just told us about, obviously a d-bag. Yeah, that's not me. It's not every man. We're not like that. Uh, I have not seen anything like this myself. I I would never do that myself, and and neither would my partners or or friends or colleagues. But for me, uh, being part of being a feminist is recognizing that I'm part of a power pattern that I don't necessarily see with my own eyes. There we have this these structures that systematically favor a certain type of uh, professionals in the in the field, and that means power, and power means abuse, and this goes beyond me and like my own personal relationship and the way way I act. Uh, so I think it's important to point out that even if if we are not this this guy at this law firm at this moot party we are also part of a problem and and step one in addressing the the problem is actually talking about it and recognizing that yeah i don't even know i have to personally if i if i'm if you allow me to be a little bit personal i i hope i mean i teach for a living though so i'm sort of in a, in a position of power from from time to time i wouldn't be at your law firm i would be carrying your water if, if your firm applied me now but <laughs> I, I i mark pe- people's papers and i'm still involved in teaching I'm uncomfortable by this discussion simply because I cannot be certain that I have not acted improperly. I just haven't understood so, you know? I, what I do you mean? I mean, I hope that I'm always a, a good guy and I try to be nice to people. but And obviously, I haven't done the thing you just described. No. But I cannot say for a fact that I haven't been improper or that I haven't been you know, taking advantage of my power without realizing that I am taking advantage of my power because such is the nature of power. Yeah, I don't always know when I am uh, exercising privileges that I had than there are other the people below me, so to speak, in, in the system do not have. Right. And so it makes me uncomfortable that I would like to say and just raise my hand and say, I'm not like these guys. I think that I'm not, but I am still exercising a pattern of power that i cannot really control
0: it takes a conscious step for you to it's like you know aa you have to admit it first and then that will then fall in line with you making conscious decisions throughout your daily life to be like okay wait is is this a decision that i'm making because of the position that i have or is this something that is actually like a genuine position i feel
1: i think this is so good that this is being brought up now and thank you Everyone who's stepped up. I'm thinking specifically now in our field about the OGM method and there are actually plenty of women who have been giving the same sort of first hand accounts that you just gave. I think now I get the impression that it's now on the agenda and people think about the the potential for, for abuse and harassment all the time in a way that we did not just a year or two ago. Yeah. I, I have f- it top of mind all the time now, just at you know, with conferences or interacting with other people. I yeah. view things differently and I think it goes to the same goes for, for most men, at least, because I assume most women were already aware.
0: Let me address this like BS counter-argument that people bring up, which is that a flirtatious touching between two consenting adults is not harassment, and now I, as a privileged man, will be hindered with my self-expression because everybody's on a witch hunt. Well, let me just say that tapping someone on the rear end or you know, caressing a woman's back is not invited. It's unprofessional. Nobody wants it. If you're flirting or not, this is not the time and place to do it. And the fact of the matter is that our profession, oddly and uniquely, takes place at parties after conferences. We're always traveling. We have hotel rooms. They're late nights.
1: Always and working.
0: Always working. And you have a lot of, like, intimate moments you're flying together, you're spending hours upon hours together, and you can maybe have this like false sense of intimacy, Or, but you have to understand that no woman is taking advantage of that intimacy to get ahead or to try and, you know, Or there may be some women that do it, but it's not as much. But what I'm saying is that this sense of intimacy is needs to be drawn a line under it and say this is a professional environment and this has nothing to do. If you need to pursue some sort of flirtatious thing, then that needs to be completely completely taken out of the context. And then you need to be invited to dinner and maybe like, you know, take it that slow. But this whole, okay, we've had a couple of drinks, we're at a conference, we're both legal professionals, and we're both ambitious, and da-da-da, this is something that I want to take further, it's not the place and time. And anybody that is coming up with the hashtag Me MeToo is not on a witch hunt, because what, the fact that they've even had the need to come up and out with it means that it's gone too far. Amen. <laughs> Have I ranted?
1: Yeah, but that's the point of this thing, I think, because we, we need to rant a little bit, and I, I mean, it, it's that's a, it's a it's a fair point, though. I think that since we all work so much, not not I, because I, <laughs> I don't work for a law firm, but most people do this other uh, area, the other forum that you're mentioning, the, the dinner or the things that is not connected to the professional life. It doesn't really exist for most most people. No, so that we're really exposed to these issues because we're constantly in, in work mode, or most people are in the in the field. Yeah. But no, let me ask you this, because I think the way it's been discussed primarily so far in our field, is in the context of a uh, power asymmetry. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that initially that it's a wider problem than just having a partner and an associate. But I think that's that's relatively harmless, and even most senior male arbitrator partners can recognize that here we have an issue because I am more powerful than the person below me. Yeah. It is not necessarily a gender thing. It's not a feminist ana- analysis. It's just... I have more power than you do, so I might abuse it. But do you think it is also on a sort of, should we call it, horizontal level that we see the same issues, associate to associate, for example, even if there's no asymmetry in the power, you're still formally on the same, like, formal hierarchical level, but the potential of abuse, is it still there?
0: Yes, I think so, definitely. I think it's a bit harder, and I don't think that um, the intention is a lot more blurred between... Well, well, uh, it, it's hard to say. I think it's a case by case basis. But I think the fact of the matter is, is that in this professional environment, women need to be treated like professionals. And this isn't like a hookup game. This isn't, you know, 2 coeds meeting up in the dorm room. I mean, you're two professionals and people do not a lot of men do are not treating women as equals in their professional environment and I think that a flirtation advance on the work premises would never be done if you thought that your woman was your your colleague equal. I think it's I think it's an implicit degradation of that woman by thinking that this is a this is a time and place to do it yeah and I think that women are, Faced with this left and right, and it could even become up like an evaluation. I've heard this from several female uh, people from, you know, different firms all over the world, that they were great at their job. They had nothing to say about their substance, but that one of their critiques was that they needed to smile more. And that's, you would never hear a man get that critique. You would never be like, Brian, you need to smile more. I'd be like, what, 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 what are you, what is, what is this? Every Uh,
1: time I talk to a female friend who works for a law firm, I'm just amazed by the energy and the persistence it has to take to work in that kind of environment, I would never do it obviously I don't even work for a law firm but and I'm not a woman yeah. but, but if I were I don't even I'm, I don't even know if I could manage to sort of face this uphill battle of constantly just trying to to argue common sense positions against the, the powers
0: <laughs> yeah the way you dress the makeup putting on makeup yeah. it's like you look tired all that stuff is just like it's not the time or the place you should be looking on what they write down on paper and their legal arguments and analysis, and that's the end of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It is, and, yeah, you know. I agree with you. I I couldn't deal... I don't think I could handle it as as a woman to face that from all angles. To sit there and know that you're the best at your job, but that there's so many things in your way. For example, if you're climbing the ladder as a woman in an associate position, and you get hit on by a partner and now you had no choice but to be involved in a scandal that you were not even involved with but now you're tainted because some man thought that they had the right to touch you inappropriately and involuntarily and publicly and now you're wrapped up in this and guess who gets blamed the woman because it's victim shaming left and right and it's like well she shouldn't have been with him late at night and she shouldn't have worn that or she shouldn't have put lipstick on it's like what? Yeah, the fact of the matter is, is this man thought that he had a right to touch a woman, and now he screwed up her career because now people are going to think that she sleeps around. Yeah, yeah. We just maybe he just said something.
1: Yeah. Typically, uh, I read somewhere in that a good, a good uh, way to think about this as a man is that you should never say something to a woman in the professional workplace that you would, uh, you wouldn't want to hear yourself from another man if you were in prison.
0: Interesting.
1: So try to uh, identify yourself with being in a weaker position you knew in, in the prison context, <laughs> in that sort you of environment, smile the, more, yeah. in that hostile environment. Basically, everything that comes out of the mouth of a more senior prisoner is threatening. Right. So try to avoid saying things that you would feel threatened by if another man said it to you in a prison. That's it's a it's a hard analogy, but I think it's That's a, good a good one.
0: one. <laughs> That's definitely a good one. So what are we? I mean, what is our do we have a call to action, or what is the point? I think we have-
1: all we can do at this point, because obviously we are pretty restricted in what we can do, is to say thank you to those people who spoke out, both in public and in semi-public and in private, to it's put this easy. on the agenda. It's not easy, and we are incredibly thankful that this is now a thing that we can talk about in a professional, serious context. And it's 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 sort of seeped into the, the mainstream of the international arbitration community, and hopefully also in the male parts of the community
0: yeah it's like the pledge i mean the point is to just be aware like you're doing now be aware in every decision that you make that there needs to be a conscious decision that what you're doing is not impacting someone negatively
1: exactly and And then i I can i mean if if you don't like it working for a law firm i can really recommend being an academic having no colleagues just working from a cabin (laughs) no issues of abuse at all because you never meet
0: another person (laughs) god (laughs) <laughs> the answer should not be like Wonder Woman isolation on some <laughs> island, but uh, some people well, have to do it. Now,
1: on this on this note, we have to go and accept an award.
0: Yes, we didn't even talk about that. That's right. But uh, we won is? the won first an of award. Many. We, <laughs> we won an award for what's it called in Swedish? Årets skillige förfarande Exactly. So it's basically recognizing people who have highlighted Sweden in arbitration. Yeah, the hey. achievement of the year. It's not you and I individually
1: as as private persons. It's no, the podcast. It's the podcast. Arbitration Station. So they, the podcast, the legal entity that is the podcast, will get the flowers and the the
0: honor. And the honor, definitely. But we are definitely going to accept that award with pleasure and pride. And uh, let's keep this movement going. Follow us. The Arbitration Station at gmail.com is the email. You can follow us at the ARP Station. Or uh, go to arbitrationstation.com. Where? I got Twitter. Oh, really? At Brian Koddick? Oh, have you been engaging? <laughs> I I went through all of Joel's followers and then followed the ones that I wanted.
1: Okay, that's not technically engaging. <laughs> that's just. But I'm building <laughs> my,
0: my my. I defriended like Paris Hilton and Kanye West, and I've put in Ixit and ICC and. CNN yeah, I, that, right.
1: I was joking. This is actually the good way of of doing it. Now you you will soon have your own personal news feed of arbitration people.
0: Exactly. So tweet at me at Brian Karik. Mm, I will. And tweet at you.
1: Yeah, at you will all probably.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It is. Great. Thanks.